For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk. Gresham College presents Decision Making in Health and Disease, the second part, including The Disordered Brain, What Happens When Decision Making Goes Wrong, by Dr. Quentin Hoyes and Dr. Neil Harrison, and The Social Brain, How Does Being in a Group Affect Our Decisions, by Dr. Ben Seymour. Um, starting as we've been running incredibly on time, which I'm shocked by, but it's been brilliant. So uh, now we can go at least an hour over time with Quentin and Neil. Um, so the next talk is by um, Quentin Hoos, who, is a, uh, who has a PhD in computational neuroscience um, from London and has also been working in um, Columbia University in New York uh, and has returned to uh, London to uh, complete his medical studies. And... Um, he, and uh, he and Neil, who is a neuropsychiatrist, uh, currently work in Sussex, but previously also working in London, uh, and they will be discussing um, the disordered brain, so what happens when decision-making goes wrong. Quentin. Thank you, Neil. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. So first of all, I'd like um, to thank the... Gresham College and also the um, Worshipful Company for Scientific Info Instruments for this fantastic opportunity to talk to you. It's really exciting to be here and, you know, for once talk to people who are not neuroscientists. So, yes. So, we've been hearing a lot about how perfect the brain is and you know, how it can compute values and do complicated things and come up with the right um, answers. So I'll talk about a little bit is kind of as an introduction to Neil's talk later on, who is a real psychiatrist. I'm just a lowly medical student. And I'll talk a little bit about the imperfect brain, about the kind of problems that the brain struggles with and doesn't always get quite right. So we're talking about decision-making here. That's the, the topic. So why a choice of heart? Turns out we've known that for a long time. And one nice quote is from T.S. Eliot. I'm sure most of you know it. Time present and time past are both perhaps, perhaps present in time future, but time future contained in time's past. So what does that mean? That means that the future influences what we do now, or what we do now influences our future. So when we choose actions and decide, make decisions about how, about, about it, we should take the future into account. A very simple, stupid example, if you will, is the following. Imagine you're right, and you have a choice of whether to you know, climb across this obstacle. Maybe not. If there is some food behind it, maybe you do want to climb across this, this, this object. So suddenly climbing across this object, which in itself might not be a particularly interesting activity, becomes interesting because of, its, uh, uh, of the reward it leads to. So if you want to somehow measure the goodness or the utility of, of, of action, we need to take into account both what we get immediately and also the future. Yeah, so we need to take into account future rewards when we make decisions. So let's think about a really, really simple example. Let's again think that you're right. And, you get a and you're, you're sat at the bottom of this maze and you think you need to choose where you go. 
You can either go left and then go left again and earn a beautiful cheese. Or you can go left and then go right and nothing. You can go right and then go left and then you get some water. Or you can go right and then go right again and get some carrots. So the question now is, if I go left here, I have confined myself to these two options. If I go right, I have confined myself to these two options. So decisions have consequences on the future available actions. What I'll tell you is how the brain tries to deal with this, or something about how we know we can deal with it and how we know the brain also deals with it. We know that there's at least three and probably many more different separate systems in the brain that deal with these kinds of problems. The first one we'll call a tree search. It's a goal-directed system. It's very clever and thinks about outcomes of particular actions. The second one we've seen already is the habitual system, which effectively just kind of goes along and remembers what happened in the past, sorry. The third one is this innate system, which we get from our forefathers, which may look not very clever on the face of it, but over a long period of time, over the over evolutionary timescale, is actually highly adaptive. Okay, so let's start, about, let's start with the first one. So let's think first about what the different outcomes might be of the sequences of actions that we might take. So sat here, we can think about taking a left, then taking another left, and getting a cheese. That would give us, say, a reward of plus four. We might think of taking a left, but then taking a right, and then getting zero. So this sequence of actions gives us this reward. This sequence of actions gives us this reward, nothing, etc. So we can keep going. Right? So we can do this on this side, or we can do this on this side. So we can go through all combinations of available actions and evaluate their relative merit, and then just choose whichever one we decide is best. Okay? So that is a very clever way. So here you will always get it right if you do that. Right? But Let's try to do it for something a bit more fun than the little maze that we have. In fact, let's try to do this for chess. Do we have many chess players in the room? A couple, excellent. Okay, so every time, each time you get to move, there is something like 30 different moves you could do. So let's start. So for the first move, I could have about 30 moves. For each one of those 30 moves, my opponent can make 30 moves. So that's 900. For each one of those, I can make another 30 moves. That's 27,000. For each one of those, my opponent can make another 30. So now we're already in the hundreds of thousands. Right? So now it's not like before where we have four different sequences that we need to consider. If we want to consider how to play optimally in chess, we need to consider about this number of moves. That's, more, that's about on the order of particles in the universe. So even our brains don't matter. So there is about 10 to the 123rd different legal balls in chess. We can't go through them all and think about all of them. We can't do this full tree search and search all possible combinations. So how do players do it? And more importantly, this is Gary Kasparov, who was beat, beaten by this thing here, which is a computer, which was called Deep Blue. Deep Blue is just a computer. Deep Blue only does what we tell him to do. So how did we manage to beat Kasparov at his game? This was the, the acting world champion at the time. 
turns out that what we did is we used habits. What we did is we played lots of games and learned what is good and what is bad. So let's just go through it here first, and then we'll come back to check. So what we'll do here, so we had this equation here earlier. So the value of a particular stimulus or state that we're in, we're going to say that we're going to update it with our prediction error. So at some, our value at the state is what we expect in the future from that state. But we might be wrong. So if we get more than what we expected, then we should update our expectations upwards. If we get less than what we expected, we should expect it, uh, update it downwards. So the, pre the prediction at all times should be the reward that we get immediately plus the value of the state we get to. So let's think about it here. Let's think about going randomly to these four uh, points. So randomly taking left and right. So then on average here, we'll go here and here. So on average, we'll get two here, right? Because we get four half the time, zero half the time. And here on average, we'll get zero because it turns out this is bad water, salty water, which we don't like. So here we'll get zero on average, yeah? So if we average those two together, on average, we get one, yeah? So if we, be, if we randomly choose and go back and forth all the time, we should expect when we get let into this maze, on average, we get a reward of one, okay? That's what our prediction should be. It should be the reward we get immediately plus the value of the next day. Because here we never get a reward. Here we never get anything. We only get it here. Nevertheless, we should already expect it here because we will get it in the future. So, let's just go through that one more time. Let's start out assuming we know nothing. Let's assume we, we, we start, start in value in status one. Now we're going to take a left. We start in value as one. The value for state one is zero because we don't know anything about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the value of the next state, which is S2, the value of this state, which is S1. They're both zero, right? And we have received zero. So the difference, the prediction error is zero. So our value of state one when we've moved here is still zero. Next time around, now we're going to take another left and we're going to get four. So now the difference between our, what we get and what we expected, we expected zero. That was the value of this state, right? The difference is four. We had this learning rate, so we update a little bit towards four. So from zero, we now update to 0.4. We do the same thing next time round for values. So now we start again at this state one, and we, you know, we do this again and again over experience. We do things again and again and acquire habit. We see that here, now, we will take this value that we had here, 0.4, and propagate it back to the value of here, so that even here we can now expect the outcome from up here. So if you look at what this looks like, over time, we end up learning values. So what you see here is you always start at zero, and then you grow. So the value for this state slowly goes from zero up to four. Here it stays at zero because we only ever get zero. Here it goes to minus two, here it goes to plus two. Here, it goes to a little something in between, right? To two. Here, it stays at zero. Here, it comes out slightly. So what does this mean? This means that the next time around, when we're sat here, we can just look one step ahead and decide which one's better. This one's better, because on average, we get two. 
here we get zero on average. So now we don't need to look all the way ahead anymore. We can just look a little bit. So the task has become simpler. So what do chess pe what do people do with chess? Well, they play a lot of chess. And if you play a lot of chess, you know that if you have a queen, you're more likely to win than if you don't have it. So having a queen is good. You don't need to think about all possible consequences of having a queen. You just need to think about having a queen. It's a simpler problem. So we've simplified the problem. It's better than a knight, and it's better than a, a pawn. And there's lots of aspects of this. For instance, this is a very typical opening. So white has moved his, two, his pawn to the middle. Black has responded by moving his pawn here. And white has now resp uh, responded by moving his pawn here. So now black has to decide whether to take this pawn or not. It's called the, 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 the king's gambit. And people have played this many, many times. And over the years, people have come to understand that actually it's a good, good option to take this. Similarly, you can just look at the pawn position and take out all the others because this is pretty static and doesn't move fast. And so it tells you something about the structure of the game. And you don't need to think about all possible po options of, you know, this is good because I can move it here, because I can move it here, etc. You just need to look at this and say, is it good? And I'll skip the last one. So that's habits. So what's good about habits and what's bad about habits? So let's do a, an experiment. We get a rat to press a lever to get some cheese. Let's love doing that. But then we give it some cheese and then make it sick, right? So now, imagine, imagine you just had sushi and you got sick. You're not going to go back to that sushi place, right? Okay. So now, we get the rat, we give the rat the chance to press that same lever again. Should it press it or should it not? Okay. So, before here, so here, the rat was pressing the lever a lot. After the evaluation, so after this illness, rat stopped pressing. If and only if it had done this only a few times. If it had done this many, many times, so many times that it stops thinking about it, after you made it sick, it continues pressing for it, although it doesn't want the food. Okay? So here we have the two systems. We have here the rat is pressing for a food it doesn't want. So it's like when you're sat in your car and you go, okay, to the left is the work, that's where I go always, but I need to go to my to my friend's birthday party, which is to the right. And without thinking, you're, you're going to the left. Without thinking about the consequences. That is the habitual system. It doesn't think about consequences. The goal-directed system does think about consequences. We take actions because of their outcomes. So we have two systems. Now we have a third system. The third system is actually, you know what, let's forget about all of this. Let's just fumble about randomly, and if we find something good, let's go and eat it. If we find something bad, there are lots of very powerful innate systems. And they're very clever and very adaptive. And this is just one example from, 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 from Oregon. So here there's two different uh, uh, species of, of, of mountain voles, which are on the two sides of this, of this mountainous region. On one side it's pretty dry, on the other side it's pretty wet. On one side, this is their natural predator. On the other side, it's this. These guys know about these guys. These guys know about these guys, but they don't know about the other ones. So when these guys are faced with this predator, they're very good at doing the right thing and just freezing, and they don't tend to get eaten too often. These guys don't get, tend to get eaten too often. But if you mix them, if you put this one in, into a cage with this one, they get eaten immediately, and vice versa. So what you can do now 
is you can take these guys and rear them in captivity for three, four generations. So now, three, four generations, we've got these guys. They've never seen either a snake or, or a, uh, what's this called? A, a weasel. Thanks. They've neither seen either of those. Yet, they still know how to uh, behave in the face of their predator and not in the face of the other predators. So there's some behavioral pattern. So this is pretty complicated. They need to recognize the, 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 the predator. They need to know what to do in the face of it that are encoded in our genes and they come for free when we're born. So we have all these different decision systems in parallel. So can we see them in action in humans? All right, so now I'd like to play a quick game. This is a game that won a Nobel Prize. So let's, let's just read this through quickly. Imagine that the United States, or the United Kingdom, is preparing for the outbreak of an unusual Asian disease, which is expected to kill 600 people. Two alternative programs to combat the disease have been proposed. Assume that the exact scientific estimates of the consequences of the program are as follows. All right, so I'd like everybody on the left side of the room to now close their eyes. And afterwards, I'll ask everybody on the right side of the room to close their eyes. So first the left side, please close your eyes. Okay, the right side, please just read this and make your choice between program A and program B. Okay, made the choice? Good. Please close your eyes on the right side. Okay, so now on the left side, please open your eyes and please read these, about these two programs and just make your choice. Okay, so I'd like any, okay, everybody open their eyes. Okay, can everybody who would have chosen program A please raise their hands? So we have more people on the right side than on the left side who would have chosen program A. Right, so let's quickly go over this. Program A for the right side was that if it is adopted, 200 people would be saved. 600 people die, that means 400 people would have died. So A and A are the same programs. Here, program B, one-third probability that 600 people will be saved is one-third probability that nobody will die, same thing. Two-thirds probability that no people will be saved, two-thirds probability that 600 people will die, same thing. So they are the same. So how come these people chose A, these people chose B? Let's go over a different example. So this is a bit more fun. All right, chicken, like food, like we do. So imagine a chicken faced with a food tray, but it's a nasty food tray. Because whenever the chicken runs towards the food tray, the food tray recedes at twice the speed from the chicken, right? Not a good food tray. On the other hand, if the chicken runs away from the food tray, the food tray comes towards the chicken at twice the speed of the food chicken, okay? So in order to get closer to the food, chicken needs to run away from the food, right? Very difficult. Chicken never gets there. Chicken goes hungry. So what's going on? Well, generally, food doesn't run towards us when we run away from it, right? 
So this is actually a very, very, very strange situation. Turns out that the chickens can't learn this because it's just extremely unlikely in the natural habitat that of, its, of the chicken they should ever encounter something like that. Right? This is just an unnatural situation. We shouldn't have a brain that devotes lots of energy to learning stuff that's never going to happen anyway. Similarly here. And we can see something of a similar mechanism at work in this year. So here, what happened, this one looked a bit complicated. You get a bit confused by it. But this one was pretty easy to make a decision on. Here, 200 people would be saved, great. Here, 400 people would die, bad. Right? So the bias we see here in a very simple experiment like that can already recover some of these very simple innate systems. We don't do much complicated deciding. And we come up, come up with, a, with a simple decision. Turns out, if you give people more time to, to make their decision here, they're more likely to be consistent between the two. So, sometimes simple is better. We just saw how simple can be worse, right? The simple system kind of didn't do well. But sometimes simple systems can do better. So here, people were given a choice between four cars, which had either four attributes or 12 attributes. So four attributes are kind of very easy. You know, it's just four things. You know, it's like big and beautiful and shiny and cheap. And all those four attributes were either generally positive or generally not positive. And people had to choose between them. So when there were very few attributes, so, and then people were, were being given the option of thinking hard and you know, really thinking it over and mulling it over or just making a snap decision. And so here is how often they, got the, got the, they made the right choice. When they had to think about it uh, in depth or when they just had to make a snap uh, decision. For the simple, simple cases, they did better if they, just, if they thought about it carefully than if they just went for the snap decision. When it became complicated, when you had 12 things, you know, it's got, it's got, it's got, it's got whatever, it's got, you know, movable, whatever. When it became complicated, they did better if they just went for the snap decisions. So here we have an instance where the, the problem became too complicated. It's like chess. We can't look ahead all the way, so we need to go back to the simpler system. Oops, did I skip one? Okay. Sorry. Okay. This, here's a second example, which is much more relevant, which involves doctors. So doctors have, you know, very clever people. They go to medical school for half a lifetime, and then they, they learn lots of things. They read lots of big books, and, you know, they represent it with patients. And patients come and say, got tightness in my, my chest, doctor. Okay, does he have a heart attack or not? We, we're constantly, as, as, as doctors, we're constantly faced with these problems, and they're huge problems. We have, you know, mountains of knowledge behind us. So, what do you think would do better? A simple decision tree like this, where we have something like that. Okay, say something comes in. What we do is we do a little ECG, and we say, okay, does it look like he had an MI on ECG? If yes, then let's look if he has ischemia. If no, then let's look if he has ischemia. If yes, um, and he has a couple of risk factors, then say he's got a heart attack. Would you rather somebody who didn't know anything about your disease, but just looked at this? Or would you rather have somebody, a, a, a cardiologist, who really knows about the disease, disease of your heart, make the choice about whether to admit you to a, to, 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 high, high, to a very special, special, specialist unit or to let you go home. Which would you rather? I bet 
you know, from the fact that I ask you that question, most of you might suggest, you might, might have guessed, that this does better. This simple algorithm can sum up years of knowledge and actually do better than doctors with a lot of vast knowledge. Right? Why is that? So in certain cases, it turns out that simple decision algorithms like this are just really efficient at picking out the important bits and leading us to the right decisions. Whereas cardiologists, you know, and doctors generally can get, can, can get confused by, by little issues. So sometimes knowledge can hurt. And this is another example, which is rather funnier. All right, so here people went into a bar and they were given the choice of two beers. And the first time around, they came a lot along and said, okay, we've added balsamic vinegar to one of these two beers. I'm not going to tell you which one, just tell me which beer you prefer. Turns out it must have been quite, both beers must have been quite bad because the beer with balsamic vinegar actually was better. Everybody went for it, okay? So if you don't tell people, they actually go for the beer with balsamic vinegar, okay? So now you tell them, okay, this beer has balsamic vinegar, this one doesn't. Which one do you want to go for? Of course, people go for the one without. So here, people were going against their own taste by, pre by, by prejudicing themselves with their knowledge that, you know, beer and, and balsamic vinegar don't go together. So, what I've talked about is that decisions are often very hard. Time future and time present. We need to consider the future consequences of our actions and that makes decision making hard. What I haven't talked about is that there's lots of uncertainty because we don't even know what's going to happen in the future. So we need to con consider not only the future of our actions, but also the fact that many different things might happen, which makes this problem even more complicated. So what we have is multiple decision systems. We have some decision systems. We have this really clever thinking, right? We have the, the knowledge that we have, our conscious thinking processes, which can deal with simple problems very well, right? Like, you know, in the maze, it gets it right, right? With the approaching or running away from the food tray, we get it right, right? But with complicated things, even choosing a car, we can get it wrong, right? So we have these different systems, complex to simple. Neither is always perfect, but jointly, they're better than any one together. It's not like we are driven creatures by our innate, nasty, pre-animal uh, um, past. That's not it these innate systems are actually very valuable and help us get along. And when they get wrong, we see a lot of, we see, we see that things go really wrong and we'll see a lot of it in the next talk. When these innate systems go wrong, psychopathology is often the outcome. The brain has to decide between the deciders. So we have different decision makers. Now we need to decide which one we will go for. We see that this is not always easy and the brain doesn't always get it right. But on average, it gets it right most of the time. And one thing that I didn't say is that these are really constantly all present. So what we can do in animals, we can take out, by lesioning a bit of the brain, one specific system or the other and reveal the functioning of the other. So they're always constantly there and they're constantly competing for attention. And as I already alluded to, the interaction of this system has a lot of consequences and a lot of important implications for psychiatry, which we'll see more in the next talk. Thank you.
Great. So um, we'll have sorry. So we'll have uh, five minutes of questions for Quentin and the rest of the panel. Oh, hang on one second, sorry, and we'll just get there. We want, we want to record you. Sebastian Boo, thank you for that uh, fascinating presentation. Can I just ask you to um, clarify my understanding on a few things? The, um, the last point first. We, we've got these three different uh, decision-making uh, systems in our brain, and, and they're actually located in different areas. They're, we know the neural correlates of these different decision-making systems. Yes, that's correct. So this goal director system seems to be seems to be mainly in the in this close to this orbital frontal cortex, so in this medial prefrontal, and maybe also in the dorsal, more lateral prefrontal cortex. The habitual system is what we saw earlier, is this is, is more this this basal ganglia in the middle, and then there is some, and then the innate system seems to sit even more in the old brain, so in in, in the midbrain, really in, in the old part of the brain. That's right. So when I'm faced with a difficult decision, I could ask myself, what system is, is working here? Yes, and that, might, that might help. The other thing is with the, the, um, the animals there, with the fowls and the snake, and yeah. um, were they, when you had these different generations, was that, I wasn't sure how the traits were being passed from one generation to the next. Were you allowing, was this a survival of those that, Survival of the fittest, or was no, somehow no. these characteristics being Nothing. inherited sort of in a Lamarckian fashion? Just have them breed. Next generation, have the next generation breed. That's it. That's all. Nothing selecting for those. So the characteristics were passing from one generation to another, uh, just, like, just that. like that. Just for free. So, so they're innate. That's the idea. So it's passed on in your genes. Right, I'm a bit confused. <laughs> what am I missing? Maybe we should talk about it afterwards. Thank you. What's known about how the brain decides between deciders? Very little. Um, or indeed, which system is There's a couple of guesses. So, for instance, between habitual and goal-directed decision-making, we know a little bit about. So turns out that you're better off with the, with the goal-directed system if you know generally about the circumstances in which you are, but you know, don't know about the specifics. So say I'm, in a new, say I'm in a new city, and I kind of know, I know where I need to go to. I can look at the map, and I can think about how to get there. I can't just go down the street and follow my intuition. It's not going to work. I've been there for a long time. I can just go down to the street and, and um, follow my intuition. So early on, it seems like we're better off with our goal-directed system. When we want to experience the situation a lot, we're better off with our habitual system. So, so one way of seeing that is that early on, the goal-directed system is less uncertain about its predictions. Later on, the habitual system has ca caught up and is now more certain than the goal-directed system in terms of uh, the guidance it can give us. But how does the brain decide at what point it is in as terms to which of it should be using? So, for instance, in terms of uncertainty. So it knows how certain each one of these are. And it goes for whichever one is more certain. Okay, that, that's what it does, but do we know what mechanism is being used internally to make that choice? Oh, no, we don't know that.
I suppose this comment is politically correct in about 400 different ways, but what you're saying is that the brain of the least intelligent, if you like, will make all these um, probability decisions without ever having heard of probability from one generation to the next. Um, <clears throat> intelligence is a very, very complicated concept. We often measure intelligence very much in terms of these goal-directed systems. Um, but that's not quite what we're talking about here. So we're talking here really about these innate systems. They're there whether you're intelligent or not. And they will guide you largely whether you're intelligent or not. They will guide most of your behavior whether you're intelligent or not. And these things are highly inheritable. So for instance, the tendency to approach things that are beautiful is just going to guide you full stop whether you're clever or not. That's, that's the idea. These things are, are present in all our behaviors. If, if, we're, if we think about it carefully, you can actually see them every day. Um, and, and they're highly inheritable. Yes. Leo or Ben? In case that if you're intelligent, that, that, that you're playing in the chess example, for instance, being more intelligent will help you play that game better. Um, that's undoubted. That's a goal-directed system. Um, uh, and it's true that there are um, some people who sort of believe in things like emotional intelligence and that really depends on how you, you define as intelligence and how you measure it um, but in the kind of common um, understanding of the word then yes I think these sort of habit systems these, emo these more uh, innate systems um, are largely um, distinct from our sort of modern notions of intelligence one, one more question. Oh, this lady. Thank you. Um, I believe in trying to make a decision to do something, but occasionally, although I want to do one thing, some instinct in me says, no, I don't think that's such a good idea. And that has happened to me quite frequently on the tube. I just... I discover later that maybe there's been a hold up on the tube or something simple like that. Now, which bit of the brain is responsible for overriding one's wanting to do something because you don't think it's a good idea? Or you don't feel it's a good idea. It's the feeling bit that comes through, isn't it? I think just one of the things you, you describe is exactly you're being aware of your different decision-making systems, and we often do act on a hunch. And one of the remarkable things uh, that we've seen in some of our experiments is that um, if we think about our goal-directed systems as our conscious system, we're aware of we should do that because of that. We can design experiments where, in fact, the kind of information is sort of hidden, and your conscious cognitive system never really becomes aware of it. But those innate systems, which we think operate often underneath the level of consciousness, are aware of it, and we can track those in the brain. Um, and it's remarkable sometimes how you think the brain is using these, those, the simple models, in fact, which, which Steve mentioned, using these very sophisticated models to work out what's going on in, in the environment. The person you ask them hasn't got a clue what they're doing. It may well be that. Part of the brain that's superimposed on the frontal bit. Sorry, say it again. Is it part of the, the back part of the brain? Is that suddenly superimposed on your? decision-making front of the brain? Well, 
I mean, quite how you get that interaction occurs is difficult to say. Uh, certainly, there are a number of areas in the brain, areas like the amygdala and the striatum, where we think that these sort of more primitive areas of the brain, or at least less conscious areas of the brain, um, uh, interact. And it may be then that you become aware of your own hunch. Why is it that I seem to want to get off at this stop or, or, or whatever? Um, I think what, what that shows you is, is that often the cognitive decision-making system isn't actually as good as that innate system, even when it's trying to do the best it can. Uh, and that's probably because they work in different ways, and different types of problem can be solved best by different sort of uh, mathematical strategies. Mm. And, and also what I think is important there is it illustrates that these pathways operate in parallel. They're not, they're not one or the other. These, these pathways and these mechanisms are probably acting in parallel all the time, even though we may not be basing our decision on one or other of them. Perhaps it just depends on whether your digestion is working or you're, you've had a good night's rest the night before, so you're <laughs> acting properly from your instinct, I imagine. Another Thank brilliant you. idea for an experiment. <laughs> uh, and on that note, uh, Neil will give the second half of this talk. Right, brilliant. Well, Quinton, thank you very much. You've given me a fantastic introduction to the, to the talk that I'd like to give today. And that's looking at what happens when decision-making goes wrong, and in particular what happens um, in psychiatric illnesses. So I'm just going to reiterate again the framework that Quinton gave us um, in his earlier talk. Essentially, there are multiple different parallel decision-making processes. And as Quinton's very nicely illustrated to us, We've got this goal-directed system, um, if you like, this, this frontally-oriented um, decision-making system. We have this habit-based system, which is in the middle, um, which we can obviously see here. And then we've got this innate system that, that arose, uh, that led to quite a few questions um, following Quinton's talk there. And essentially, each of these systems operates in parallel. As we've heard again from Quinton, sometimes we base our decisions on one or other of these systems, but the important thing is they're working together. And, and what I want to address is what happens when perhaps one of these elements begins to break down. So, for example, we have damage to this system, or likewise this one, or there's an imbalance in the activity of each of these systems. So let's start with the first one, then. So what happens when we have damage to this goal-directed system? Where does that leave us? So I'm going to take you on a little bit of a, a historical journey to begin with. This is, this is Cavendish in Vermont. This is 1840. This is a bit of an unlikely setting um, for sort of insights into neuroscience and insights into the neuroscience of decision-making. And this was a sleepy little town, um, relatively unknown in Vermont. And this is a picture of Cavendish in Vermont about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. So what is clear is there's a big difference. There's a big railway system running through the middle of Vermont. Okay, this is clearly very different. And this is the beginning of our story, because there's a very important person, as it transpires for neuroscience, that was working on this railroad. He was 25 years old. His name was Phineas Gage. And as you can see from this sign here, he's probably the most, most famous thing about, uh, about Cavendish. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happened to this poor guy was he was a foreman working on the railroad, and his job was to put dynamite into the holes, put sand on top, pack it down with a big iron rod. And he was doing that, and then one day, for whatever reason, he forgot to put the sand on top of the dynamite. And that caused an explosion, and this three and a half foot long, six kilogram 
um, iron rod was shot underneath his, underneath his jawbone, straight through his head, and it came out and it landed 25 meters away. Um, I mean, what's even more remarkable about this is a couple of minutes after the accident, Phineas Gage got up, walked around, spoke to his colleagues as if nothing had happened. Okay. So he was taken off to the doctor and he was seen by the doctor and he suffered, um, rather unsurprisingly, a lot of infections. Medicine at that time in 18, 1840s wasn't terribly good. But he did, in fact, in the end, make what was described as a full physical recovery. Okay. So that means that he could walk and he could talk and his sensations were largely intact. I want to draw your attention to this these sort of two remarkable slides here, these are obviously weren't taken in 1848, but what happened was that Phineas Gage's brain was preserved in the Harvard Anatomy Museum, and it was reconstructed, it was scanned with CT scans, and attempts were made by Hannah Massio in the States about 15 years ago to try and reconstruct exactly which part of the brain were damaged in Phineas Gage. And what we can see is these white blobs at the front of the brain, this area that we've been talking about all day, this orbiter frontal region, are clearly grossly impaired in, in Phineas Gage. And what's remarkable is that these sort of yellow bits and these green bits here, which are the bits that are associated with um, language, are, are preserved, as are motor and sensory areas shown in red and blue. So Phineas Gage had selective damage to this orbiter frontal region. And what, what happened to him? Well, even though there was no physical damage, his friends described him as having changed. So he was no longer the Gage that we once knew. He was no longer employed by the railway. In fact, he went through a number of different jobs. And what he was unable to do was regulate his behavior according to context. So, for example, he would act in the same way with his, with his railway colleagues as he would, say, in, with a family or in a social setting. And that's clearly going to you know, run you into trouble in, in the 1840s or even now. Okay? So what, what appeared to be the case was that he was unable to have a flexible reward representation. Okay? And what I've shown here, this I think is probably the first time actually all today that I've actually shown a picture of a human brain. Um, and I think the area we're talking about is right here. This is just above the eyes. So what about since Phineas Gage then? What have, what have we learned about this, um, this area and what happens when, when we damage this area since Phineas Gage? And these, these are a couple of um, um, patients that have been found. They didn't suffer damage, traumatic damage through you, you know, a big iron rod, but they, they did suffer traumatic birth damage. So these had the same damage in the same region as the brain as Phineas Gage, or a very similar area, um, from the word go. And what's remarkable about these people is when they became adults, they had severely impaired social behavior, they were insensitive to the future consequences of their actions, they also had impaired autonomic responses to punishment. So for example, if one or other of us is punished, we'll have a sweat response, our heart rate will go up. That, that just doesn't happen in, in these two individuals. And they also had impaired decision-making and impaired social and moral reasoning. And this is described, the, the, the description of this impaired social and moral reasoning is similar to what one would see in psychopathy. And what I've shown you down here at the bottom is this is Kohlberg's level, levels of moral reasoning. And what Kohlberg argues is, is that we go through different stages of moral reasoning throughout our lives. We start at this pre-conventional level, progress to a conventional and possibly to this... Um, this post-conventional um, form of moral reasoning. And what's striking about these two individuals who've had damage in this region here is that they're both operating at this pre-conventional level, even in adulthood. So this is a level that you would expect to see in sub-nine-year-olds. Okay? So they're making decisions 
here a very egocentric perspective on decision makings and can't incorporate sort of higher concepts of societal good in their decision making process. So what about, what about psychopaths per se then? We've looked at two groups of people that have had damage to the brain and what the consequences that uh, are of that. And this is a study from Adrian Rain, and he works in Los Angeles, and apparently it's quite easy to recruit um, psychopaths from Los Angeles. <laughs> um, I'll frighten you by telling you how he gets them. He just goes to his local newspaper, looks at the small ads, and then, so someone's saying there'll be a painter and decorator, then he phones them up and recruits them for his study. So that's where he finds them all, and apparently it's a, it's a good source of, of Los Angeles psychopaths. So... <laughs> So what I'm showing here is this is grey matter volume. So this is just how much grey matter there is. And it's for the whole of this region here. Actually, it's the prefrontal region, but it includes this orbitofrontal region. And what he's shown is that in individuals who score extremely highly for psychopathy, um, they have a reduction in grey matter volume in this brain region here. Okay. So suggests that, and, and these people have not had any traumatic injury, they've not had brain injury, they've not had anything else. So if you happen to be unfortunate enough to be born with low grey matter volume in this area, you'll probably have a higher risk of scoring higher on the psychopathy index. You can see there's, this isn't perfect. I mean, there's plenty of normal people that will be scoring in the same, drain, same range as individuals with psychopathy, but it does suggest that um, a reduction in volume in this area that's invo involved with moral reasoning and also with high-level decision-making um, is associated with psychopathy. So I'm going to come back to Quinton's slide here now then, which I've ripped off from him. Um, and we can see the second of these systems here, this habit system. And Quinton's argued that there's a very specific brain region, this deep basal ganglia region, that's involved in formation of habits. So initially, we are responsive to the outcome of our actions, but eventually we become... When, when habits occur, we become unresponsive, if you like, to the outcome of our actions. So you remember those rats that were sitting there eating the food, and Quinton said to us, if you poison them or, or give them something unpleasant, they're not going to eat that food again. But if you fed them hundreds and hundreds of times and then put some poison, they'll just go right back and eat it again. Okay, so this is a difference between, if you like, a, a learning uh, which is dependent on the, the reward and the outcome and one which isn't. And, and that would perhaps is a simplified way of describing what a habit would be. So what goes up wrong then, or, or, or what's psychiatry got to do with this habit system? And I think probably the most important, well, a, a huge part of psychiatry is associated with drug addictions. So people whose behavior can be formalized as, as, as well, they have a loss of self-directed or willed behaviors, um, an increase in automatic, sensory-driven um, behaviors. And it's proposed that this may happen because Almost all drugs of addiction involve modulation of brain dopamine. And this is the drug that we've heard of at least two or three times um, over the course of today that's involved in reward-related processing within the brain, and in particular within these regions that are illustrated here. And so it appears that in some way that drugs begin to hijack this reward system so that the drug actually becomes salient at the expense of all other rewards that are available in the environment. So you can imagine a drug... A drug-using individual will, will use drugs regardless of the fact that they're well aware of the negative impacts of that and well aware that there could be other rewarding um, stimuli within their environment. So what it seems to suggest is 
that, and, and, and research in this area is at a relatively early stage, quite how um, this transition from an from a, um, outcome-dependent behavior to a, to a habit-based behavior is entirely clear, but it certainly involves these brain regions here in the basal ganglia, which I've illustrated here. And all this slide shows is that activity in these basal ganglia regions is clearly different between normal individuals, which are illustrated here, and individuals who have been um, long-term uh, long drug users. And it doesn't matter, you can see here, what the particular drug is. Okay, so let's switch back then to this innate system. So this is the one that Quinton was talking about um, again in his talk, looking at evolutionary strategies. So this idea that there are certain stimuli within our environment that are innate and that either have value or, um, or, or, or have positive or negative value to us. So again, how can this be associated with human behavior? And I think, again, what I'd suggest is that there are a group of anxiety disorders in humans called specific phobias. They're pretty common. Probably 4 to 8% of people have one, which I would guess means there's probably 2 or 3 people in the room that may have specific phobias. Um, and what they are is there's a disorder where anxiety is invoked to a specific stimulus. Okay? So that wouldn't be... It would only be one or other of these, or it could be a range of other stimuli. Say, for example, the spider here. And that's totally out of proportion to the danger that's related to this spider. So we can see the spider looks pretty mean, but it would also be seen even to a very tiny spider. And what's interesting about the range of stimuli for specific phobias is you can, you can imagine that they have, they play an innate, or they have an innate value, each of these objects. And this doesn't relate to, we don't get specific phobias about objects that are, that are seen in the com common modern world. We don't have specific phobias to PCs, for example, okay, or something like, or mobile phones, or at least not that I've come across. So, so it seems to be related to objects that are innately of value to us. And what's important about these is, is that we could all imagine that we may have an anxiety or fearful response to this which would modulate our behavior. If we saw any of these, we may cross the road or we may avoid them. But what about these guys? I mean, there's a little money spider on, on your thumb. I mean, this looks incredibly harmless. And, and this poor guy, I mean, I think you'd be hard pushed across the road to, to run away from, the, from this guy. So, so what seems to be happening is, is this innate system, which is, if you like, an innate value system is crossing over and percolating into our behavior and changing our behavior. Oh, we're back again. Okay, thanks. So, sorry, where was I? So, okay, so within, within specific phobias, these are understandable, but it transitions to these objects, which I, which I think um, would be hard to, to find a functional role for having a phobia to these guys. And the fact that these are innate uh, or, or objects with innate value, I think, is evidence to suggest this comes from how you treat these specific phobias. So in the past, people have attempted to treat these specific phobias with long courses of of psychodynamic psychotherapy, very complex CBT-based approaches, and they may have some limited benefit, but then people tend to relapse again. Okay, so they may work for a while, but they tend to relapse. The most effective way of treating these phobias is something called systematic desensitization. So what that means is taking somebody and exposing them, either flooding, presenting them to a nasty spider and leaving them there, 
or gradually presenting them a tiny money spider and then making it progressively more and more anxiety-invoking. And this desensitization, this, this basic behavioral mechanism, results in much longer-term um, longer benefit than any of these complex psychodynamic sort of approaches. Okay, so I'm going to switch topic now because I'm a little bit worried that I might have sort of left you with the impression that psychiatry is all about impaired decision-making, it's all bad, people with psychiatric disorders aren't very good at this, that, or the other. And I want to take a totally different switch now and say, well, look, Quinton again has demonstrated we're all, or a large part of us, are illogical. And he gave us the, um, well, I'll give you the example again here. He gave us this one. Remember this one. 200 people will be saved, or, or one-third probability that 300 will be saved. Now, half of the room made one decision, and half of the room made exactly the opposite. And we can see that they're essentially identical. So how is it then that, you know, we can be so illogical? Is there anything, is there any suggestion from psychiatry that, in fact, individuals with certain psychiatric disorders are actually more logical than we are? And so, and the answer is yes. <laughs> and, this is, and this is what I want, want to show you here. This is a study that, that um, I did um, at UCL. And what it tries to do is it tries to mimic that Asian disease problem. Okay? So I'll just run you through it. You're told at the beginning of this study, you get 50 pounds. Okay? You've got to make a decision. Do you want to keep 20 pounds or do you want to gamble? And you can see there's a chance here of keeping all of that 50 pounds. Okay? In fact, there's a 40% chance of keeping all of that money. So you can see 40% of 50 pounds is 20 pounds. So it's exactly the same. Okay? So it's a fairly boring choice. Either you keep it or you gamble. And we presented this task hundreds of times with different, varying different amounts of money here. And meanwhile, what we did, we varied what we called the frame. So this is the gain frame. And the only difference between this is you're told you get your 50 pounds, and then you're told you've got a certain chance of losing 30 pounds, or you know, the same chance of keeping the whole lot. So you can see these are exactly identical. If you start with 50 pounds and you keep 20, it's exactly the same as losing 30. But what you find is that, much like that Asian disease problem, most of us will end up gambling more in this lost frame than we will in the game frame. So you can see here, about 10 to 15% more of the time we'll take the gamble. But striking individuals with autism don't make this, this uh, logical error, if you like. Their, their, their decisions are not governed by the frame. So they will make the same number of gamble choices regardless of this frame. And I think this is interesting because what it suggests is that perhaps this this habit-based system or this heuristic system that Quentin has talked about perhaps in some way is altered in individuals with autism. So they're not prone to making these logical errors. And perhaps, though, this may underlie why they have difficulties in things like certain social situations where you need to be able to use a heuristic. You cannot calculate all of the different options in a complex social situation, say at a dinner party or drinks or, or something like that, where there's lots of different people speaking to you all the time. So you need to have some sort of heuristic, which perhaps um, these people with autism uh, don't have. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. Right, so we've learned not to get a painter decorated in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, so does anyone have any questions for Neil, uh, Ben and Quentin? Oh. 
Hi there, thank you very much everybody. Um, I'm just wondering if I can ask, I'm quite interested in behaviour of kind of clinicians and also patient behaviour and be, being able to kind of make sensible choices for yourself in terms of healthcare. And you, you did mention one study, I think it was Melly et al, 2002. I'm just wondering whether anyone could maybe, um, I don't know, refer to any other papers that would shed any light on decision making either by patients or within kind of clinician groups? Yeah, I mean, um, clinicians and economists share the kind of um, uh, dubious honour of being held up as people who should be the most rational in, in society. So they're, they're often the usual targets for um, these sorts of decision-making experiments because of all people, they should be the most you know, rational, schooled in decision theory or, or, or clinical diagnosis. So in fact, there's a whole discipline studying um, decision-making uh, in uh, clinicians. Um, and the, the, the remarkable thing is that, that people are just clinicians are just as susceptible to all these sorts of different types of irrationality that ordinary uh, or non-clinicians are um, these frame biases so there's an experiment um, which actually Kahneman did after the lattice framing experiment which is um, where they got clinicians to decide on a course of treatment um, uh, they were given two courses of treatment for, for a patient, and one of those um, options was a sort of surgical option, and that was expressed in terms of mortality rate. Um, and they gave a different group exactly the same options, but expressed the surgical treatment in terms of uh, survival rate. And the decisions moved all, you know, shifted all the way over. Don't like offering the, the, the surg surgery if it's got a mortality rate, but we like offering it if it's got a survival rate. Um, and of course, that's extremely important, and it tells us a lot about how we should try to teach our doctors uh, how to think about making decisions. Um, and equally, it's important from the patient's point of view, um, because in um, the modern NHS, um, patient choice is a key thing. I went to a talk by Andrew Lansley this morning, and choice is still the big thing, just as it was with Blair and Milburn and um, Blair and Dobson. Um, and it looks like there's some situations where patients will characteristically make bad decisions as well. Um, of course, we know that because they eat too much, they smoke, um, and so on. But even in terms of, you know, when studies have looked at how they decide on what hospital to choose, for instance, the most important determinant is, you know, the price of the car parking, not anything to do with the actual quality of the hospital or how, how much MRSA it has. So, yeah, across both clinicians and patients, uh, we are reliably irrational. Thank you very much. Um, uh, in terms of phobias, um, as I've seen uh, 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 on your presentation, uh, what percentage do you think uh, are phobias based on previous experience or, shall we say, non-experience, um, a sort of uh, a, an indifferent or ignorant uh, background of something? Um, for example, I've seen in my life two people bitten by snakes, uh, having been in the medical services, and uh, I am fearful of snakes. <laughs> uh, in addition, uh, with the mountaineering that I've um, encountered, I've seen somebody drop from, uh, uh, from a height. So there is a background of uh, a fear, a phobia. Uh, what I'm getting at is uh, people with none of those backgrounds having phobias and people having a background of experience. Could you say anything about that? Finished. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, uh, that's a very good point. And people with, not everybody who, who has a specific phobia has a history of, you know, being attacked by a dog, say, when they were a child. Okay, but there's certainly a greater prevalence or greater incidence in those people that have had personal experience or like you're describing. Um, it, things become a little bit difficult because, for example, the fear of heights, and one of the pictures I showed you was actually of a fire woman um, who had developed a fear of heights following a, a pretty horrendous experience when a colleague was, was killed um, during a firefighting episode. So it's sometimes a little bit difficult to disambiguate what's a, a phobia and what may be like a PTSD type response, a post-traumatic stress response. Um, so for example, your, your mountaineering experience, I don't, I don't know too many of the details about that, but it may be that this is more of a post-traumatic stress disorder type response rather than it would be classified more in that way, and I'd need to ask you some more questions about <laughs> exactly what it was, rather than a specific phobia. So there are, there are a bit of both. Um, there's definitely personal experience which increases your risk of developing a specific phobia, but there are also genetic components as well. So anxiety disorders are, do have a, a genetic um, role, and there are particular, in fact, particular functional polymorphisms that increase your risk if you have them of developing an anxiety disorder, regardless of what, you know, what your environmental experience was. I wonder if you have anything, I'm sure you have something to say, about the condition of not being able to make a decision at all. I am told by people who know about this even better than I do, that it is a characteristic of increasing age. What kind of dysfunction of the brain is bringing that about, and what can I do about it? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question, actually, and one of the conditions which that's seen, seen particularly is Parkinson's disease. Um, so Parkinson's disease is the disorder of the basal ganglia, the striatum, which we saw some pictures of earlier, one of the key uh, brain areas for decision-making. And one of the typical things which a patient with Parkinson's disease will say to you is, you know, they just can't make up their mind. And it's often these trivial decisions, um, what to watch on the TV or what to have for dinner, um, rather than the really big decisions, which they're just absolutely hopeless at making decisions. So the first answer is, yes, it's your, probably your striatum. I'm not suggesting you've got Parkinson's disease. Um, the question of what to do about it is a little bit more tricky. <laughs> It's not unrelated to the last question because I was going to ask about the normal ageing process and whether that had any um, effect on how we make decisions. For instance, am I too old to bother learning to play chess? No. <laughs> no is the short answer. I, I think a good way of thinking about the brain is a bit like a muscle. The more you use it, the, bit, the, the stronger it gets. And you know, there's, there's, there's no time to stop using it. Um, if you don't use it, on the, on the other hand, it will, it will work less well. But that's just a question of um, exercise. That's all. I just wanted to ask a question about uh, intuition, which is something that interests me. Um, is it, do we accept scientifically that intuition sort of exists? Is, that, is it synonymous with this innate system of decision-making? Um, I mean, by intuition, I mean knowing something that turns out to be correct without knowing why I know it, like the, the lady 
here suggested, you know, gave the, the anecdote of knowing that it was best to get off at this stop, and it turns out later that it was good to get off at that stop. Does intuition exist from a scientific point of view? Do we accept the validity of this notion that we can know things that turn out to be true without knowing them? I think, sorry, John. All right, thank you, Quentin. I'm, I'm a great fan of intuition, um, and I think intuition has been looked at in a number of different ways within science, but perhaps with slightly different words other than intuition. So, so for example, we know that that we can, I mean, we can bias individuals' behaviour without them being aware of the fact that their behaviour has been biased in some way. Um, for example, you can be, I mean, just in a social interaction like we're having at the moment, you're probably picking up on different features of my body but may not be able to even to describe to me what they are. So, I mean, I can change your behaviour by flashing different emotional stimuli at you that you may not be able to report that you've actually consciously seen. So, so I think intuition is... I'm a strong fan of it. I, I think intuition is, has a, a very big part to play, um, but perhaps the, the, the naming of it is perhaps it was named differently within within scientific research. Just make that much more. Yeah, no, I guess it comes into the, to, um, in psychiatry and things like um, schizophrenia, where um, um, certain parts of the symptomatology suggest that people sort of overuse their intuition. They develop ideas about about um, about things which, of course, based on uh, false beliefs. Yeah, and then, uh, as, as Ben pointed out earlier, we can give people uh, tasks where they learn things which they can't verbalize, they're not consciously aware of. So there's two aspects. One is these different systems. You know, one of them, you know, this consciousness is, is, is like thinking ahead and thinking through all the possible options. Kind of seems more like it might be related to consciousness, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Consciousness is a, is, is a complicated construct that we just don't understand. And we don't understand how it maps onto these, onto these systems and whether it maps onto these systems at all, in fact. So sometimes you can get people who, you know, very of, often we will do something and then come up with a, with a reason for why we did it afterwards, kind of post-talk. And then we think that that was the reason why we did it, but it wasn't actually. So there's some, there's some classical examples where people are asked, you know, how much would you, how much would you like, so they're given uh, some money and they're asked, how much would you like to contribute to this charitable cause? The charitable cause might be, oh, there was an earthquake somewhere and mm, could you contribute some money? And people say, oh, lots. And they, effectively, you give them that situation, people contribute nothing. And you give them a picture of a, of a child with big eyes that, that looks unhappy and give everything. So people are there, you know, they're not quite, they, they can't verbalize the motivations underlying their actual behavior. Nevertheless, they come up with rationalizations of it. So quite how these match up is, is not quite clear. But the fact that there are intuitions, I think, is not, not to be questioned. So what's the effect of charity muggers? <laughs> <laughs> charity muggers. No, those, those chaps who stand up with clipboards. But, um, sorry, you had a question.
No, 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 over to you, uh, Quentin. You can. So it's a very difficult um, question. I knew, I knew he was going to say that. But I think one answer might be in how we estimate the likelihood of events. So it turns out, so, so some of the work that Kahneman did relies on, and, and, and one of the things where he pointed out ways in which we're not rationalists and way in how we assess the likelihood of events. It turns out we can overestimate the likelihood of very unlikely events um, by a lot. So what, what we can end up, uh, we, we end up being kind of, you know, prey, we end up being prey to the fallacy where, you know, we've seen it once, therefore we must be common. But it turns out it's not. So that's very common among scientists. It happens to us all the time. <laughs> so we constantly get scooped. We have a great idea. We, we decide we do some research. We come up with a beautiful result. And then it's published by somebody else. It happens all the time. So what happens there? In fact, there's a theorem which says that every invention is named wrongly. It's named by the second person, not by the original inventor, including the theorem. So. It turns out that ideas can kind of be in the air. So we can, we can all think about similar, some thoughts are pretty obvious, given the background we have. If you're walking along a beautiful, um, a beautiful sea coast and you're having a beautiful time, it's unlikely you're going to think about Nazi war crimes. Right? So the kind of environment you are is going to shape the kind of thoughts you're going to come up with. And if you share a lot with a person, that might shape it a lot. The fact that you're together might shape the way you, you will, the kinds of things you think you will, you will think about. Just the way that the social background of scientists and you know the scientific surrounding of science shapes their ideas, so that in different parts of the world they come up with exactly the same idea. This is again an issue, much like the, the previous point of, of the words that we use and what we're actually talking about. And, and telepathy, uh, I think, would suggest that somehow this sort of degree of mind reading. And I think, I think again, that's probably not the best or, or not the way that I would frame what's happening. And I think I would, I would frame it within the context of empathy. Yeah. And I think that's something that Ben is going to be telling us a little bit more about in the next talk. So how it is that we understand other people and un understand their emotional feeling states and things like that. So just to add one thing then, because um, I, I thought you were going to ask that question, um, is that the brain seems to have a natural tendency to want to explain things. So we're always looking to try and form models which explain things which happen. And it seems often appears to be the case that we perhaps too ready to, to use explanatory models, like invoke some cause, like telepathy to explain things. 
um, then there's actually justification for. I'll have, we'll have one last question. Oh, th this gentleman here, he's not, he's not asked a question. No, not asked a question. Oh. <laughs> that gentleman, oh. Uh, Where does creativity come into decision-making? I mean, um, does it mainly apply in the decision tree one? Because in a sense, the more, you know, in a sense, you can, the creative people can presumably come up with more potential ways to put into the decision tree, but do, do they apply to all three modes of, of decision making and thinking? Well, I was just going to very quickly say that Quentin is uh, not only a keen uh, photographer, but also uh, keen on dance. So he's perhaps the best place to answer this question. <laughs> so I'll, I'll have one quick go, but I think Ben might have a better answer. <laughs> so, one way of, well, one very interesting way of thinking about creativity is um, lateral thinking. So just trying things out. Um, but if you just try things out randomly, you're not going to do well. So you need to try things out in a very clever, directed way. Um, I think in that, in, in that way, creativity would, could just be seen as coming up with decisions that other people don't come up with but are nevertheless very good. That, that would be one very simple explanation. I'm sure Ben has a better example. Yeah, I think it, um, one of the interesting things about creativity is its relationship to the unknown. So if we did a sort of experiment, I said, okay, uh, after the talks there's going to be wine and there's going to be different wine between these two doors. Behind this door there's going to be you know, Waitrose Select wine. You know, a nice wine, pretty ordinary, you know, not too expensive, not too great, but not bad. And behind this door there's going to be uh, an unknown wine. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Um, and what you find is people are just um, fascinated by the lure of the unknown. They'll often go, even if on average the wine is aggression, I don't want to say too much about that, a lower quality of the, of the, of the Waitrose uh, select. People will often be tempted by the unknown. And that's because there's something intrinsically valuable about knowing about uh, the unknown. Um, and we see the same thing in things like skill learning. Why is it that... Um, people learn to try to climb, well, kids try to climb trees. Um, there's no extrinsic benefit from that, but they're just learning, uh, in a sense, a set of, of skills that could be useful further on. And it seems as if, from our experiments, that the brain has attached an intrinsic motivational value to trying new things, going new places, to trying out, I guess, exploring uh, the unknown uh, as a key way um, to kind of find out about things it doesn't know about. And that turns out to be fully uh, rational from an economic point of view. So the final talk is uh, Ben Seymour, uh, who will be talking about the social brain. How does being in a group affect our decisions? And as I said, there will be an exciting game. So, so I'm really curious to know how many um, phobics are in the audience. So I wondered, um, Nick, perhaps, perhaps the time now to release the spider. <laughs> so as, as um, Nick mentioned, I'm going to uh, talk about what happens when we take the decision-making uh, systems that we've learned about so far and ask the question, uh, what happens when we embed those decision-making systems in groups? Um, and what happens when uh, the outcome of our decisions depend on um, what other people are doing. So I'm going to talk about um, 
things like social emotions, things like empathy, and how our understanding of the brain can inform our understanding of, of, of things like empathy, and also a more sort of cognitive aspects of social uh, behaviour, things like theory of mind. And I'm going to go on to talk about things like, or how, how our understanding of the brain uh, can inform uh, our understanding of things like human altruism. Uh, but first we're going to play a game. And here's the game. Um, it's for everyone to play, and the instructions are here. So each of you has got, has got to choose a number between 0 and 100, um, and write the number on a piece of paper. And the pieces of paper uh, are now being handed around uh, by Nick and by Wako. Now, the winner of the competition is going to be the person that picks a number which is two-thirds of the average that everybody else has chosen. Okay? So I'll give you a little few minutes to think about that and then write your answer down. Now, at the end of my talk, I'm going to... I'm going to give a prize to the winner. And the prize is this book here uh, by Chris Frith, um, Emeritus Professor at UCL of um, Social Psychology and one of the pioneers of, of brain imaging um, at UCL and in the world. And a number of us had the pleasure to work with Chris um, over the years. This is his new book, Making Up the Mind. And whoever wins gets a copy of that book. And if there's a tie... Uh, we'll just choose somebody at random because we've only got one copy, unfortunately. You can get it from Waterstones if you're, that, if you're interested. Okay, so um, after you've thought of your number, write it down and write your name on the piece of paper as well. And uh, then we're going to pass around an envelope and Nick and Marco will come around and collect your, collect your entries. And then by the time the talk's finished, we'll have worked out who's won. I'll just point out that copying is maybe not the best idea. Okay, so let's start to think about um, what it is to behave or to live in a group. So imagine, if you will, that you're a flamingo. If any of you are imagining yourself wearing a nice pink suit... Um, Please see Neil afterwards and make an appointment for his NHS clinic. But if you're a flamingo, for most of the time, there's really only two things you care about, food and predators. Uh, but there's a problem, because if you want to eat, uh, the things you eat, these worms, are sort of buried in the sand or in the mud. If your head is stuck down there, uh, you can't look out for predators. So you need to spend some, time, some of your time looking up. A scouting horizon for predators and the rest of the time uh, with your head in the sand. Um, so it's fairly easy to see that if there's a big group of you, you can, you can eat much more efficiently. You can just, it only takes a few of you to scan the horizon um, to look out for predators and the rest of you can spend much more time um, uh, eating worms. So as an individual decision maker, um, you're going to spend much more time eating if you're in a large group um, than if you are on your own. 
Okay, so there seems to be a problem with that, though, because if there's a huge big group of you, then, of course, you've got to share all the worms with all the others around. And there can't be that many worms stupid enough to, to be um, uh, uh, sort of wandering around this unusual pink forest, um, so to speak. But there's more to sharing the meets the eye. These are um, wolves hunting a bison. And, of course, if there's a group of you, then you can surround the bison um, and have a pretty good chance of uh, cornering it or surrounding it, and one of you will grab it, and the rest of you will you pull it down. But if you're on your own, um, you've pretty much got no chance whatsoever of, um, of catching them. So imagine that you're a wolf, and the sort of decision-making um, uh, or the choices that are available to you. If, um, if you're hunting alone, maybe the only thing you can really catch is say, small snow rabbits. Um, they're a bit of a snack, really. They'll keep you going for a day or so, but not for much longer. But if you work in a group, say, with six of you here, um, that opens up the possibility to catch big um, bisons. And even though you've got to share that large bison between the six of you, it's still, what, at least 50 or 100 times bigger than, um, than a snow rabbit. So it's clearly much more um, sort of rational to spend your time hunting with others and sharing the proceeds. So cooperation here um, allows you to sort of opens up the environment to rewards you would never have if you just worked on your own. So it clearly makes um, uh, good economic sense, so to speak, um, to cooperate uh, with your colleagues in things like hunting. Uh, but blind cooperation doesn't necessarily seem like such a good idea either. Uh, these are tits. And, and if you place a sort of a little a handful of food pellets uh, on the floor. If one of the um, um, tits sees that, it'll emit a little, uh, a little uh, tweet, uh, which tells its friends uh, that there's food around, um, follow him, and they all go down and uh, start eating the, the pellets. But then if you, rather than putting a sort of bunch of pellets there, put one large pellet, um, which can't really easily be shared between the others, um, but is overall the same size, the same amount of food, um, then if one of the, the, um, the birds sees it, uh, then keeps quiet and just goes down there and helps itself. So um, the birds uh, sort of seem to have some sort of appreciation of whether or not cooperation is worthwhile um, or not. So what the tits display is sort of communication um, and cooperation by signalling. Um, but signalling can be used in um, ingenious, uh, if, not, if slightly less um, cooperative ways, uh, in other animals. These are vervet monkeys, and they live in the trees. Uh, they're social animals. Um, they live in small groups. Um, and what they have is a number of signals for different types of threat. Uh, so they have, a, they have a signal for... A snake. If, a, if, if they hear the signal for a snake, then what they'll do is they'll um, very carefully um, uh, inch around the place with their eyes peeled in the undergrowth or in the trees for a snake, keeping very, very still and being very careful. However, if one of them emits a signal for a bird of prey, uh, then what they'll all do is dash down to the bottom of the trees and hang out in the undergrowth. That's much, obviously, a safe place um, from, from threats from the sky. Um, and if they emit a signal for the um, uh, threat of, say, a leopard, uh, what they'll do is 
Um, all of them will dash up to the top of the trees. Uh, and of course, leopards can't climb up that high, and that's a safe place to be uh, if there's leopards around. Um, but now imagine there's a, a, a group of um, uh, a family of, of vervet monkeys happily enjoying a bunch of fruit on the top of the tree, and along comes an intruder, a stranger, somebody from a different uh, group. Um, what's been observed um, uh, by a number of people is that the monkeys will sometimes emit a, one of their threat signals um, to deceive the intruder monkey into thinking that there's a threat, such as a snake. Uh, and of course, what, that's, what the uh, intruder will do then is very carefully creep away from the source of the danger. So they appear to use signals um, as a means of deception um, to sort of compete with uh, alternative groups. Um, and here's another example of using uh, social signals to mislead others. Um, now, leopards and many animals mark their territory uh, by urination. And what's thought uh, is a rationale for that is that one of the natural responses to extreme threat um, is an autonomic response, a sort of uh, inherent response, uh, which involves um, losing control of your bladder. And the thinking is that if another animal comes along or starts to move onto your territory, what it will see is patches of urine on the ground, and it will make the assumption that other animals have been here, and they must have been pretty scared for what I can see uh, down here. Therefore, whatever is here must be pretty terrible. Uh, therefore, I'm going to go back the way I came. Um, and, of course, negative social, negative social interactions may be much less sort of covert than that. Uh, these, are, these are stags, but stags often compete for things, not only territory, but things like mates. Um, and... If they do compete with each other, what they don't do is um, fully engage from the start in a full-blown fight. Um, and of course, fighting each other incurs a significant risk of injury to themselves, even if they go on to win the fight. And what they seem to do is, first of all, they do something called a parallel walk. They'll march up and down, um, looking at each other, trying to work out which one is bigger. And what they're trying to do is work out who's going to win the fight. Because if you know who's going to win the fight then there's no point in fighting at all. Even winning will hurt you. Um, and it's only as if they appear to be about the same size uh, that they'll then sort of go on to the next stage. And the next stage is sort of snorting behaviour, a kind of test of your lung capacity and how, uh, how much stamina you've got. And the person who can snort and huff and puff the loudest um, will win. But again, if they're equally matched, they then need to go on to the next stage. And that's what we see here, locking horns, pushing each other. So pushing each other backwards and forwards far more direct test um, of your individual strength. Um, if there's a clear winner, then both back down and the, um, the stronger one in, in the, in the um, stag pushing uh, part goes on to, to win the contest. Uh, and it's only if it's if that stage is it's really, um, uh, again, closely matched that they'll then go on and have a... Uh, um, a fully-fledged fight. Um, and if any of you think that just really applies to animals, um, uh, go down to the pub on a, a Saturday night and watch some guys um, arguing about a girl. And you see exactly the same sorts of things. Um, and indeed, uh, there may be sort of quite a few insights which our mammalian uh, ancestors um, can, uh, can give us to our own behaviour uh, as humans. 
And to get insight into this, let's go back um, a couple of hundred years to the time when Bentham was around. Um, this looks uh, uncannily like um, uh, this hall, actually, which worries me slightly. <laughs> um, but um, uh, as you know, Bentham was interested in decision-making, and the reason he was interested in decision-making was because he wanted to reform the, the legal and the penal system. And, of course, here in Holborn is the... Um, it's been the home of, of law in, in the UK for, for um, many centuries. And what troubled Bentham um, was there are too many criminals and that the systems for punishing uh, those criminals seem to be um, um, far too harsh and extreme. So Bentham tried to understand human decision-making so he could try and understand both the mind of the, of the criminal and the mind of the, of the punisher. And he thought about criminals as making exactly these sorts of decisions explained by the, the spider diagram we saw earlier, weigh up the risk um, of being caught and the benefits of, um, and, the, and the losses associated with um, successfully doing a crime, such as pickpocketing, uh, and the, the, the loss associated with being caught and, and being punished. Uh, and this is a sort of punishment which you might get for um, being a pickpocket. This is an Italian invention. It's called the strapado. Um, what you see is the, the poor criminal here strung up by his shoulders um, and a big weight here attached to the bottom of his uh, feet. And he's hauled up and he'd often dislocate his shoulders, um, which is sort of seen as a fitting crime for, uh, for pickpocketing. Um, and this sort of troubled Bentham. And what Bentham noticed um, was that not only was this harsh, but often juries would end up acquitting pickpockets in the face of seemingly incontrovertible evidence of their guilt. Um, seemingly because they behaved, um, they had some sort of empathy for the, for the sort of poor tyke who was, who was um, in court. And Bentham then suggested that, you know, decision-making can't necessarily all be understood in terms of purely selfish, rational uh, motivation. But we also have kind of sympathetic emotions, he called them, and antipathetic um, emotions, that we try to look after our friends and colleagues and neighbours, and that we have tried to um, punish those people who behave uh, against society. Um, and what Bentham started was an argument about... Um, the reason we punish people, which still resonates in sort of modern legal philosophical arguments to this day. Because on the one hand, we have this, we have this idea that the reason we punish people um, is because they deserve it. Um, this is uh, retribution, uh, I can't say that word, <laughs> retribution. Um, and uh, the idea is, you know, has, has its origins in sort of ideas about, you know, um, religious ideas about sin. Um, but that people who um, commit a crime should be punished and that's the right thing to do and that we feel motivated to do that. And that's a kind of a deep visceral feeling um, uh, within us. That's kind of a, like an emotional account. But Bentham sort of suggested, well, perhaps that isn't the best way to, or even the best foundation on which to build our, our penal systems um, on. And what he pointed out was, you know, of course, the rationality for punishing people is to provide a disincentive to them to doing the crime again. Uh, so that if we punish people, they're less likely to commit the crime again, and then we'll all be better off. And what's more, by having sort of open prisons, um, if people can go and see the criminals getting punished, um, 
they, they can also learn what not to do just by purely observing others. Um, and these two um, sort of com- uh, competing motivations uh, appeal to sort of distinct aspects of our decision-making systems. Um, uh, the sort of uh, the emotional account, the uh, retributivist account, um, seems very innate, uh, and the consequentialist account sort of appeals to modern ideas about game theory, um, seems a very cognitive account where we can rationalise uh, uh, punishment. So human empathy, um, when we think about the sort of more emotional aspects, um, is really a sort of a, f- a fascinating thing. Um, this diagram, I guess, is more aimed towards a gentleman uh, in the audience, and that's, um, that's not a kind of um, sexist stereotype on the ability of women to understand cricket. It's just that we all know what's just happened uh, to this poor player. He's been struck by the ball, and I've spared you the, the, the image before this where he is actually struck by the ball. Um, and what's amazing is that we have this remarkable ability to sort of feel the pain of others. We feel deeply sorry for him. It's horrible to watch uh, this, this poor guy in pain. Even though he's um, you know, no relation of ours, he's no friend of ours, he's just a, a random person playing cricket on the TV. Uh, but what's even more remarkable is that we have an empathy for animals. I mean, what possible reason could there be to display any empathy for this Poor, cute little puppy getting the injection here. And I defy even the kind of harshest, um, um, uh, most cold-hearted people um, amongst you not to feel a um, a shred of pain um, as this poor puppy gets the injection. Um, And what's remarkable is that, you know, why would we ever have a brain which displayed empathy for other animals? I mean... um, we're not exactly that closely related to, to puppies uh, or dogs or, or whatever. And it, you might be forgiven for thinking, well, that um, suggests that we have a sort of rather um, uh, crude, uh, unsophisticated, natural, em- uh, empathic response. It's not necessarily... Um, how do you feel if this guy gets pain? This, of course, is, is Jack Nicholson in The Shining... And he sort of um, uh, rampages across this hotel in the middle of nowhere, um, trying to do as blood-curdlingly bad things as possible to the other people there. How do you feel if he gets pain? Well, he does meet a rather icy end. And, of course, it's deeply satisfying when we see him dying. Um, There's no shred of empathy when we see him um, sitting there in the morning, uh, frozen to death. And, of course, filmmakers know this. Um, and there's two key ingredients in, um, in making the end of the film as satisfying as possible. The first is to make the villain as heinous, as, as uh, bloodthirsty as possible. And the second is to make, let him reach, or her, uh, reach the most gruesome, um, uh, horrific death uh, that you can imagine. And, of course... Um, even even be um, a human. Um, if it's Jaws or if it's some giant killer worm, it's still equally satisfying when it gets blown to smithereens or falls from a great height onto something spiky um, at the end of the film. So how can our understanding of the brain inform you know, what's going on and how our, um, our 
social emotions um, are, are um, emitted and, and, and controlled by what appears to be a sense of, of wrong. Well, we, we designed an experiment to look at exactly this. Um, and we took volunteers um, and we got them to play um, a cooperation game, a game from game theory. It's called The Prisoner's Dilemma. Um, and in this game, um, basically you have two choices of what to do. You can either cooperate um, or defect. Um, and basically the best thing to do is to both for you to cooperate. If you do that, you end up um, over time going home with the most money. But there's always a bit of a temptation to defect. And when you defect, um, if the other person cooperates, you get loads of money and the other person gets nothing. But of course, that isn't a very nice thing to do to the other person and they'll probably not cooperate with you in the future. If you both defect, you both go away with very little. So any reasonably pro-social person, any, in fact any rational person, um, should uh, try to cooperate as much as possible um, and gain an understanding uh, with the other person uh, and they'll both go home fairly rich. And we got uh, subjects to come to our lab um, and to play this game with what they thought were other people, um, other subjects. In fact, the other people were actors. Uh, we'd gone along to the uh, College of Art and um, uh, got some out-of-work actors and got them also to come along to the lab and to play the other people. Um, and half of them played a very nice strategy, a very cooperative strategy, always trusting and always cooperating, and they both went home with, um, you know, uh, with plenty of cash as a result of those games. But the other half played um, a much um, nastier um, uh, strategy. They cooperate a little bit, and then they'd um, scoop the money by defecting, and they keep doing this, and our subject would hate them uh, for it. So what did we do then? Well, we invited our subjects to sort of stay on for another experiment, an experiment they thought was um, separate. Um, and in this experiment, we told them they were going to watch other people exper uh, experiencing electric shocks, many rather low, not very painful ones, but a few really um, uh, strong, stinging ones. Um, and this is a setup in the experiment. Uh, our subjects... Uh, is you can just about see here the legs lying in the centre of the scanner. You've only had one picture of a scanner so far, but if you remember, there's a hole in the middle of that, um, uh, of that uh, big magnet, and the subject's lying down there, and with the aid of a few mirrors, uh, they can look out the end of the, um, of the scanner, and they're aware of two other people um, sitting beside them, all with electric uh, shock electrodes attached to their hands. So, uh, subjects because they can see a screen here, they know who's getting electric shocks at any particular time. And of course, these are our actors, um, and one of them is playing, one of them in the preceding game had been a nice one, playing a cooperative strategy, and the other one uh, had been a nasty person uh, playing a defective strategy. So then what do we do? Well, we record their brain activity. So what do we expect to see? Well, when the nice person was in the scanner, Subjects show empathy, and they report that to us. And when we look at the activity in the brain, what we see is activation in the brain areas which are involved in their own sensation of pain. So they're activating their own pain areas um, uh, when they see the nice person getting strong electric shocks. Um, even though they've never met them before um, um, uh, the day of the study. 
Um, and we've seen that and replicated it a, a number of times. And it's remarkable just how strong the brain activity is when we see other people um, in pain. So what happens when the nasty person gets the big electric shocks? All the pain activity disappears. Uh, it's all completely wiped out. But we do see activity down here in the striatum, ventral striatum. And that's part of the brain's reward network. Um, and consistent with what people tell them when we ask them afterwards, there's an inherent sense of satisfaction when that nasty person, um, the person who cheated on them during the game, uh, got the big, strong electric shock. And what it shows is that um, you know, what, at first glance, appears to be a very primitive emotional system for, um, uh, for interacting with others is far more sophisticated than we realise. And it's governed by a kind of inferred morality about how the person played um, in these game-theoretic uh, tasks. Most people never played a game like this um, before. So clearly our social emotions are far more sophisticated than perhaps you might first think. Um, but whether they're sufficient to explain our behaviour in all situations um, uh, seems less likely. Let's go back to the stag hunting dilemma. So imagine you're one of these people and I pull someone off the street and get them to play the job of the um, other hunter. And you've got to move around this maze trying to catch either a big stag or these tiny scrawny little rabbits. Of course, the scrawny rabbits are worth very little to you, but they're relatively easy to catch. But big stags can only be ca caught by um, cooperating with your, uh, with your opponent. So you need to come to some, some kind of arrangement which says, OK, let's chase him over here and corner him, and then we can get him together. So wh what goes through your mind when you're thinking about how to play that? What are you actually thinking? And of course, what you need to think is, um, OK, well, what's the other guy going to do? Um, what's he thinking? Put yourself in the mind of the other person and say, well, if I think he is going to cooperate, then I should cooperate. If I think he has no interest in cooperating with me, then I shouldn't cooperate with him. But when you think about that, you realise that, OK, but what are the other guys like me? What are the other guys thinking? Well, what am I thinking? So I need to take that into account. I need to think, OK, well, what does he think that I'm thinking? Um, uh, and, of course, I need to sort of have some sort of internal model of, of what's going on, a very cognitive model of, of his mind and his mind thinking about my mind. But hold on. What if he's thinking I'm thinking that? Then his mind... In his, I need to have a representation in my mind of what he thinks that I think that he's thinking. And, of course, it goes on and on. And it's an intractable problem. And at the heart of it um, is an understanding of theory of mind, our ability to understand the thoughts... Um, uh, and intentions of others. That's showing them cooperate. That's showing them defect. So theory of mind allows us to think about um, what other people are thinking and build a representation about what their intentions are, what their values are, um, and what their motives are. And of course, as you probably realise now, you need to think about this when you're doing the game that we played at the beginning. So if you assumed that everybody else in the room was um, rather silly, you might have just assumed that the average is going to be 50. Um, numbers from 1 to 100, the average will be 50, and that what you should choose is uh, two-thirds of that 33. But then some of you would have thought, OK, um, everybody think, everybody's thinking that. 
Um, everyone's going to choose 33, but I'm cleverer than they are. Um, I'll choose um, two-thirds of that, uh, 22. And, of course, you can go on and on. Maybe you think that everybody else is that clever, but, of course, you're that little bit more clever, as most of us think we are, um, and we choose two-thirds of that. So what, that's, what the sort of game, and we'll, we'll, we'll reveal the winner in, um, a little bit later, shows is that um, the key to understanding or the key to behaving in many social situations is trying to work out uh, what the um, other person is thinking, what the other person thinks that we're thinking, and so on. Now, uh, Waka Yoshida, who's um, uh, one of the scientists in, in, in a lab with us sitting down here, um, studied exactly that and build, has built the sort of complex mathematical uh, model of how, how brains ought to be able to solve this sort of problem. And what she's discovered is that the heart of the brain, um, or the heart of the strategy which the brain appears to use, is trying to work out how sophisticated other people are. So what it really cares about is working out, okay, I think that everybody else in this room should be sort of two-step thinkers or one-step thinkers. And then all the brain needs to do is then to behave at one step more than that. And when we look at brain activity uh, during these sorts of tasks, um, we see representation of, the, of how much the brain predicts that other people, uh, how sophisticated other people are, and how uncertain it is about it. So the brain appears to use a very sophisticated um, strategy for working out how to behave in these sorts of complex theory of mind um, type tasks. Now, what's been clear is that our ability to think about what other people are thinking and uh, to cooperate with other people almost always makes a lot of sense. Um, it's perfectly rational um, to cooperate with people when the environment says that that's a good idea, when the environment is structured such that that's a good idea. And, of course, building up you know, relationships with people, trusting relationships, building up friends, makes good economic sense. Reciprocity makes sense. Forming a good reputation makes sense. So giving money to charity, you know, if you're a company and you give money to charity and everybody sees it, of course you build a good reputation and hopefully you'll benefit from that in the long run. And you know, economists are very pleased with this because it seems to support the idea that what often appears to be apparent prosociality or apparent altruism um, can be explained by... Um, ultimately um, selfish motives and that our capacity for cooperating can all be explained by uh, reciprocal relationships and reputation formation um, and so on. And the reason that that um, is pleasing to most economists is because ultimately you know, brains have to evolve. Uh, so our, the kind of evolutionary notion that um, brains evolved seems to be satisfied by this idea that even though we often seem to be very cooperative and pro-social, ultimately it's all selfish and evolution should favour that sort of selfish person. But there's a niggling question about whether that really is enough. Do we always behave like that? Are we always ultimately selfish? Um, you know, if you pass a poor homeless person, a needy person on the street, do you sometimes you know, give money or give help to that person without any conceivable benefit to yourself? Nobody's watching. This person is never going to um, pay you back um, in any way um, conceivable. And the trouble for classical economics is that people do seem to do that. Um, and as much as many people have tried to find explanations as to why, okay, you design an experiment 
and people are fooled into thinking that they're going to benefit when they're not. Um, but in the last few years, it's become increasingly clear that, no, this is a, this is a clear behavior, human behavioral trait across different societies, from you know, New York economists to um, people who live in tribes in um, uh, New Guinea. We all appear to have this inherent uh, pro-sociality, true altruism. Um, and to try and find out how the brain might give rise to that, um, we can travel to the arid plains of the Kalahari. Uh, these are meerkats, and they live in um, the southern part of Africa uh, on these very dry plains. Um, and as you might imagine, food is a little bit scarce um, there. There's not much to eat. Um, but what meerkats um, have um, acquired as one of their favourite meals is the scorpion. Now, of course, that kind of isn't necessarily what we would choose to eat, um, and it goes without saying that it's a slightly dangerous thing to eat. Um, getting stung by a, a scorpion, if you're a meerkat, may be fatal. It's certainly going to cause you significant injury. So it's not something you're going to want to do um, very, very often. And what was observed only recently, actually, from, from, from um, ecologists in Cambridge when they went down there, is that what... Uh, meerkats appear to do is to teach each other how to how to handle scorpions. So what the mo mother will do um, will get his pup uh, and get a scorpion and then kill the scorpion and then allow the pup to play with the um, with the with the dead scorpion. So it gets used to kind of handling it, knows where the various bits and pieces are on on the on the scorpion. And then after it's sort of uh, um, mastered that, it then gets moved on to live scorpions, but with the sting removed. So it breaks off the sting and allows the, the pup to play with the, um, uh, the disabled um, scorpion so that it gets used to handling um, a live one. And then only finally um, will it uh, let it play under supervision with a real one, sting attached and everything. And of course, by this time, the pup has learned how to handle it. So the question is, what's going through the mind of the pup? It can learn to, to handle a scorpion without actually ever getting stung. Um, but you know, what does the actual pup think about getting stung? Well, of course, these pups presumably can go on um, to teach their own pups when they become um, adults and teach them how to handle scorpions without getting stung. And of course, conceptually, what could happen here is that successive generations of pups can teach um, each other um, how not to get stung by a scorpion without anybody in that generation ever having been stung. So what representation does the state of being stung have? It's like a myth, um, but of course a very rational one. It makes absolute sense. It's a very good myth to have. Um, but it has some type of representation um, which is valuable, but you know, at first glance is rather difficult to uh, uh, understand. Um, but seemingly what the pups have acquired is a sort of culture. They know that they mustn't touch the sting because that's bad, but they don't necessarily know why, and they don't need to know why. Uh, all they need to know is what to do and what not to do. So can this sort of understanding of culture explain things like altruism? How can it, can it explain human behaviour? Well, let's imagine a thought experiment. Imagine that um, at the end of the, of the talks, uh, I place two. We have, we have some food. We don't, unfortunately. Um, but if we did, we had, to, we had two salads at the front here. Say, a nice chicken salad uh, and a nice prawn salad. Uh, and imagine that everyone's clambering to get at the food, um, 
and you um, who have a sort of slight predilection for prawn salad, you like prawn, um, but you've got, you're foolishly sat towards the back of the audience and you're a long way from the front. But when you peer forward, you see that everybody else is, there's a bit of a frenzy around the chicken salad, but nobody's touching the prawn salad. And it sits there just as it was when it was laid out, and people are helping themselves to the, to, the, um, uh, to the chicken salad. So when your turn comes up, what do you choose? You prefer prawn salad. Do you go for the prawn salad? Well, I'll suggest to you that most of you won't. You'll think, why, isn't, why is nobody eating a prawn salad? Do they know something I don't know? Do they arrive early and sit sitting out in the sun in the window? Um, and of course, the rational thing to do is to not have the prawn salad, because the decisions other people make have information. Um, other people are information processors. Uh, they have information that we necessarily don't have. Uh, and the rational thing to do is to try and make best use of all that information. Rather, you know, why learn from other people's mistakes rather than learning from your own mistakes, uh, for instance? So, in fact, it makes sense um, to 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 rationalise why people are doing something uh, and why they're not, um, and incorporate that into your own decision-making processes. Now, that may be that everybody else in the audience happens to be allergic to prawns, and there's nothing wrong with the prawns, but of course you don't know that. But you have to weigh up the risks and um, you know, the various probabilities of these different explanations and judge that accordingly. So how might this work in things like in, in cooperation? Well, the reason is that if you imagine being born into the world sort of naive, how can you learn about social interactions from other people um, from observing them? Um, so imagine you're sort of you're young and you're new to social interactions and you're born and you watch two, um, uh, watch two people interacting. Say you watch Nick interacting with um, Steve and you want to have some way of judging whether, these, whether Nick and Steve are particularly successful. Um, um, and of course you see them cooperating and let's imagine that uh, Nick is sophisticated but selfish. So he engages in cooperation because it's rational, because he knows that he's going to build a good reputation and he's going to benefit from that. So you'll look around, you'll look at Nick and you say, okay, he looks, he's got a nice shirt, he's got a very nice suit, you won't mention the shoes. Um, <laughs> and of course what you'll do is try and work out, well, what's he doing? Because whatever he's doing, it must be worthwhile for him. Um, and of course you've got two things you can try and do. You can either say, well, he's cooperating, and therefore, cooperating must be a good thing to do. And of course, you will never be around to watch Nick interacting you know, in weeks or months' time to benefit from the cooperation. But you have a choice. Either you can take into account his actions or you can ignore them. And in most situations, it's going to make sense to take, in, take those actions into account. So you can either say to yourself, well, you know, cooperation is good, and therefore I'll do that. Even though I don't know why that's the best thing to do, it probably is. Or alternatively, you can try to build a model of what's going on. You can say, well, what I notice is that the, the, sort of the, um, the goal of Nick's interactions is to make Steve happy. Whenever they interact, Nick cooperates. Steve has a big smile on his face. Um, sorry, you're dressed up as the flamingo there. Um, uh, and then learn that as a kind of inferred sub-goal that making other people is a good thing to do. Uh, so, in effect, what you'll learn is that making other people happy um, is valuable, and it, in most situations that pays off. And that's a rational inference to make um, if you don't have access to all the information. 
Um, and what that suggests is that by using information optimally in a world, we should, we should expect people to be not just altruistic in a, in a way which can be explained by, um, uh, by reciprocity and reputation formation, but that it's a natural way that the brain learns or uses information to learn about um, interacting with other people. Um, now, I'd love to show you ex experiments about how we've proved all this with brain imaging, but we haven't. You haven't done these experiments yet. And for me, I think this is one of the key frontiers in our understanding of decision-making is understanding how this, what is ultimately former culture, um, uh, how the brain learns about that and how that guides our decision-making systems. A few experiments in the last few months have suggested that we do use these same decision-making systems you've been learning about um, from... Quentin and Steve and Louise and so on. Um, you hijack those systems when you learn about what the best thing to do is from sort of cultural uh, or observational information. Okay, so uh, I'll thank my collaborators, Waka, who did the very nice um, uh, uh, theory of mind experiment. Um, and it's time for the results of the, of the game. Okay, it looks like there's a tie. And uh, as expected, uh, the winning number uh, was 22, which suggests that um, most of you were, uh, the average was around about 33, so that most of you are one-step thinkers and that the winners are two-step thinkers. Uh, but there's five of you with that number, and there's only one book. <laughs> now, I could give the opportunity to be pro-social, and uh, let somebody else have the book, but perhaps um, we won't do that experiment. Uh, I'll pick a name at random. Nick, do you want to pick a name at random? And tell us who it is. Philip Kent. So a round of applause for Philip, <laughs> and uh, thank you for listening to me. <laughs> So any questions? Uh, Nick, are you chairing? <laughs> any questions? In primary schools nowadays, they understand it's part of the national curriculum to teach students, young, young children, about the so-called social and emotional aspects of learning, and presumably this is to... One of the reasons for this is to help young people understand more about empathy and to be more, um, you know, to have more empathy towards their peers. Is there any relationship between the sort of the work that you and your colleagues have been doing and how this is, can be applied to um, to working with young people and getting them to be to have more empathy? Yeah, I think one of the um, we haven't we haven't actually looked at um, young people as such. I think one of the one of the big open questions is whether our sort of capacity for empathy is genuinely innate uh, in that it's something we've acquired when we're born from our, the genes that control behaviour, whether it's something we learn very early on um, when we're babies. And, of course, it's very difficult to do the experiment where you control for taking babies and having no social input for those that do. Um, but it's certainly the case that um, 
the early you know, developmental periods have a, are likely to have a, an important impact on uh, your future um, social behaviour, be it pro-social or anti-social, and of course there's a whole um, a, a large literature on um, the kind of um, the richness of your upbringing and how that impacts on your future behaviour. So it is, an, it is an, it's obviously a critically important point, uh, but not one that we've actually expli explicitly explored. Now it's turned on now. Um, I'm curious about decision-making under anxiety. Um, we've had PTSD mentioned and Parkinson's as well and the indecisiveness that goes with that. In individuals, there's this idea of a donkey caught between two rewards, a pot of food on one side, a pot on the other, and it either sits there, doesn't make any decision at all, or um, in some cases wanders towards one, stops, turns around, goes back to the other one as though it's overestimating regret. I'm curious about how that interacts with what you get in groups. You very rarely find a group that absolutely paralyzes. It may sit there and shiver for a while, but someone will move and then everyone goes running off after him in desperation. Perhaps like David Cameron could come up. He's come up with a decision. It's suggested it may not be the right one at this point, but it's a decision. Therefore, we're all going to desperately go running after it. And I'm curious about the interaction of fight, flight and freeze in individuals and how you see that happening in groups and how they compare. I guess it's a, as a, your, your, your question covers um, uh, a broad range of topics. Um, I think it's a really interesting issue how we make decisions in groups, sort of boardroom decision-making, um, um, and how that if you sort of have a, you know, a, company boardroom or jury, for instance, um, how uh, interactions within that group you know, yield an ultimate decision at the end of it. And one of the, one of the other really fascinating aspects to, of, of group decision or social cognition is hierarchy formation and how groups structure themselves sort of, um, uh, sort of self-organizing in, into a, a structure which forms a natural hierarchy. We know that... Um, Many animal species and primates have clear hierarchies, and of course, it's the same in humans. Um, and there's a number of you know, fascinating experiments in behavioural economics which, which, which look at and show just how you can get all sorts of perverse decisions that come from groups. But um, I think we haven't quite understood that from the, at, the, um, at the level of neuroscience. I mean, the dynamics are, are fascinating, they're complex as well. Um, and I think I only know one study which, so far, which is only look at very simplistic aspects of hierarchy formation. Because what you have is sort of combined desires. One is to climb the hierarchy, and the other is to make a, a good group decision. And those don't always agree. Uh, interestingly, you talk about the, the altruism side and seeing someone on the street there, how people react to them. Um, one thing that obviously comes in as far as our side is concerned is the effect of religion and one's religious upbringing and how, whether, you know, the chicken-egg situation, whether is it, is it our innate beliefs in, you know, our innate human nature that's generated religion, that's generated our attitude, or has it come the other way around? Well, I certainly don't know the answer to the question, um, but clearly religion is a, um, 
uh, sort of formalizes a, a sort of moral structure for guiding people's behavior, and it joins other um, uh, belief systems and uh, kind of cultural structures which, you know, which uh, influence us. Films is another example. So um, Hollywood films and cartoons and things are a key part of modern children's culture. And, of course, they tend to be, um, have happy endings. Um, in fact, I can't think of any Hollywood cartoon, Walt Disney film, which doesn't have a happy ending, although I don't actually watch that many. So I think that yeah, religion joins other aspects of our culture, which, which uh, allows a kind of a formal structure in which we can embed our, um, you know, what may have evolved, uh, as in through generations, as, as, a, as a good way to, um, to run our lives. Because, of course, having that saves us spending more time thinking about it. Um, as you would have seen from the so sorts of theory of mind type um, diagrams, it's, it's clearly incredibly complex to try and work out what's actually the right thing to do in this situation. So much easier to have a clear um, cultural guide to tell us what you do, and then of course you can you can spend your uh, energy, you can use your brain thinking about other things, being creative, and, and, and so on. If I may just, if I may just add to that. These moral structures are really, really very powerful, and, and in many ways, they're much more powerful than the, than the immediate gains we may we, we may get from you know, particular beha uh, behaviors that we, that we choose. So, one example, which I don't remember where I got it from, but it involved a school where the parents never brought their kids on time. So, the school decided to instantiate a fine. So, parents would be fined five pounds or something like that every time they brought their kid too late. So, parents thought, great. And I can just pay. And they brought their kid even later and just paid for it. Whereas, and, and then, so then they abolished it, but they could never get back to that, to that, to, to that previous statement. So it's, it's not like you can just replace moral statements with, you know, moral values with money. Or sometimes you ha you'd have to pay a lot of money to get the equivalent force of a moral value. So in that sense, things like religious institutions are just extremely powerful organizers of, of societies. individual than, than if you're not. So, so there seem to be, you know, at least at that very basic level, benefits of religiosity and religion. I happen to believe that the world is changing in cycles. We've got a long history of that, from the Old Testament, the Jubilee year, and in modern days we have the Contriatiac cycle from 1936, and then if we look back to the industrial history of this country, the first industrial revolution was the first cycle from England's point of view. Now we should be going through the different wars we've seen from the English point of view, which much of Britain altogether is included in. We should be facing the seventh long wave of economy. And the most important aspect of economy has nothing to do with economics, as most people 
what's your response to that? Because I think, having been at the same place in Queen's Square, where I took my PhD in 1950, how do you think the human brain is the most important thing of capitalism? What should we be calling it? And how is that change going to come about? Without that change, it's not worth living. Yeah, so I think in terms of um, political theory, of course, understanding cycles of how we think about the individual um, uh, and society um, certainly has cycles, and perhaps we're seeing that now um, with a kind of move away from an individualistic society um, to a more, um, um, I guess, a more pro-social society, a more... um, a society in which we have a better understanding of uh, sort of our place in social groups and so on. So I think there is a, a kind of a little bit of a political cycle, although I'm not a political historian um, to back that up. Let's just add one point about cycles. So cycles are the simplest signature of a dynamic system. As soon as you couple two things together, you get cycles. In the brain... We get cycles all the time, so we have, in the brain, we get cycles all the time. We have these neurons that talk to each other, and you know, they can activate each other and inactivate each other. So if, if a neuron activates another neuron, that neuron activates it, then they might activate each other more and more and more, and it might explode. That's one mode. If they inhibit each other, they might both quieten down. If one activated, if one, activate one and the other one is inhibited, then what you might get is a cycle where sometimes this, this neuron is allowed to talk and then he's is being inhibited. Cycles are really, if you do linear dyma- dynamical theories, it's the first thing that happens. So as, lo- as soon as you have a couple of things interacting, you'll get cycles. Cycles are very, very, very fundamental uh, uh, features of all kinds of sim- uh, um, systems. And in some ways, you can think of them as epiphenomena. For instance, in the brain, too much, too, too, too much of this cycling uh, is often associated with epilepsy. And you can, you can make a good argument that the brain actually tries to get rid of, of these cycles. Um, just, just a point on altruism. Uh, my experience over the last few years about altruism has been it's been significantly dulled by the concept of the large charities and the, the, the organizations. And it's rather like the um, example you showed about um, there's a 20% chance of dying uh, as opposed to an 80% chance of survival. You, you're now looking at the big charities and you're finding that their statistics show that 18% of all money goes to the, the, the charitable cause. 82% doesn't. You know, it's spent on administration or complying with regulations or whatever. Um, and, and, and the other one on the personal note was the, the, the Tusami uh, experience of, what, five, six years ago? Um, and I remember, it was over the New Year, and I just about had to nail my hand to the desk not to write a cheque or pick up the phone. And, of course, 18 months later, you hear that of all the money that was raised for the Tusami, none of it got to the victims. Um, and I, I just wonder how the conflict here between... Um, supporting international causes like that on the one hand as opposed to giving 
a scout troop 20 quid to um, do up the chicken run. Uh, you, you know, there's a sort of clash between the altruism on the one hand that you wanted to help these poor people who were left homeless uh, and the realisation that any money you were going to send there was invariably just going to get lost. And that applies equally to your huge um, charities, the, the, the one with the charities in the high street. Um, if they can afford to pay for people like that, then they don't need my money. So I guess um, the sort of the rational approach to that is, um, of course, if, the, if charities do misuse um, money which has been given altruistically, given time, people, uh, as information is spread, people learn that that's the case, and, and of course, no longer give to the charity. So this, it's not actually rational for a charity in the long run to have a strategy given that there's always a high probability that the, the way in which they use their money um, uh, will become public. Um, you get similar arguments um, in the case of um, punishment, for instance, rep um, uh, retributivism and consequentialism. One of, the parent, you know, one of the arguments against consequentialism is that um, that seems to justify punishing innocent people. Um, because then that provides a disincentive for other people. So even if you know that somebody is innocent, um, sometimes it, for the good of, the, of, of, of everybody else, it might appear rational to punish them. Um, that always falls down, of course, if it ever gets known um, that um, that occurred, then, of course, the whole system breaks down. A similar thing with things like Machiavellianism. Being a Machiavellian is a great strategy until you get found out, then it becomes an irrational strategy. Uh, and I think the case with, um, with you know, the charities which you're alluding to um, is exactly the same. It's only a good strategy for them um, to, uh, to free ride on the altruism of others as long as they can keep it quiet, um, which in your case clearly haven't. Um, well, first of all, it's been a fascinating afternoon. Um, when I was a student, I was um, told that, in fact, if you're very smart, you became um, a, um, a neuroscientist or um, a cardiologist. And if you weren't too smart, you became a gerontologist or an infectious disease person. And that colours my question. Um, we've had a lot of theory this afternoon, but there is a great big world out there where we're making decisions, big decisions all the time. And if I could put an extreme example to you. Um, we have a disease um, that kills 999 people out of 1,000. We have a vaccine which is 100% effective, but unfortunately it causes irreversible de brain damage in one person in a 1,000. Now the question is, do we use that vaccine? And the answer straight away is yes. We now have another situation where we have a disease which kills one person in a 1,000, and a vaccine which actually causes irreversible brain damage um, in 999 pe people. You don't use that vaccine. So according to the theory, we've now got a point right in between that, where we can use that vaccine or we can't. We take an example now where you've got the disease that kills um, 501 people in 1,000 and the vaccine um, which um, prevents disease in 499. Now, how do you persuade, how does the panel persuade um, both the FDA and NICE um, about the advisability of using this vaccine, giving two parameters? One is that the vaccine at the moment costs one pound, but in future it's going to cost 12,000 pounds <laughs> well, I think NICE have lots of, has, have a lot of statisticians, and they 
you know, they're trained to do exactly those kind of decisions. And I think we should leave it to them. They know how to do it. I mean, it, it, sounded, it sounded a little bit like the trolley dilemma, the, you know, the, the classic dilemma of moral uh, philosophy, which is if you've got a you know, runaway trolley coming down do you, um, and you have control of a lever, do you, um, do you switch it from killing three people to killing one people? Yes, no problem. However, if the trolley is coming down um, and uh, you have an opportunity to push uh, a big fat boy in front of it to stop the train killing three other people, do you do that? Ultimately, it's the same thing, but of course, it seems, you know, unacceptable to to intentionally take the life of one person to save the other three in the latter situation than the former. Um, and that raises really important questions about how we make those decisions. Um, um, and it's important for when we think about how we structure our political systems and our regulatory systems, because ultimately, what you want is a kind of um, that cold, rational level detached from actually implementing those sorts of policies. Uh, but then you also have to ask yourself, well, how does that policy impact on our broader uh, sort of moral culture? And then that's, of course, where you can explain why it seems to be accepted in one and not the other, because the impact it has on your, your culture. I think the example you've given is, uh, shows one of the parallels to, to, to the experience we had not that long ago with the, with the measles vaccine and with the MMR vaccine. All of a sudden, we're faced with what is actually a very, very unpleasant disease. Measles is associated, as I'm sure many people know, with, with nasty encephalitis and, and all sorts of other potential complications. And then we're faced with a situation where we're told there is this side effect and potential risk of, of causing autism, which is, is absolutely no evidence that that is the case. But just the example you've given was played out in real life over the last few years, I think. And the fact that perhaps people have forgotten how unpleasant measles is and, and issues like that, I think, may have a, good, a big part to play in, in the strategies that are adopted um, in addressing, I guess, something like this in the real world. Yeah. Maybe one last word is that th those are the kind of questions I think society should answer. They're not really the questions science should or can answer. Sorry, sorry may I just say that these are the questions that we are even when I was working full-time, was being asked time and time again, these big decisions, do we make that decision now um, or do we shelve it, in which case it may be too late. So I think we have to put our input into it. Scientists and clinicians have to put their input into this. Um, but eventually the decision could be made by politicians and um, bureaucrats of various kinds. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Okay, so I'm going to make some extremely brief comments. First of all, I'm going to give Philip his book, so we can give Philip a round of applause. Um, so I'm just going to give a quick recap of, of what we've heard, a very, very brief recap, um, uh, just, just, to, just to reinforce a, a few, few messages. Um, so... I mean, basically we were saying, so in the first half we heard that, that we all make decisions all day, every day. And we went through a lot of everyday examples. So, for example, you could, uh, you could choose to either have cake or whether to have salad. And that seems like quite a long time ago now. Um, and uh, we can describe that mathematically or conceptually, and we, could, we can describe it as what's called a discount. Um, we can say, how much is, for example, £100 in a month worth in today's money? And we can describe that mathematically. 
And then, remarkably, we can see uh, precise signals within the brain that correspond to these quantities. We also saw, for example, that um, we, we can address things like issues of value. And again, we can look at it on a mathematical level, and we can talk about things like prediction errors that Steve discussed. Um, and on a brain level, we can um, relate these specifically to, again, to signals, for example, in the basal ganglia. And I think one of the messages that Louise in particular was keen to get across was what both of these demonstrators is that you can ask questions about behavior, and then you can describe them conceptually and mathematically, and then you can undertake experiments, which, um, which uh, both behavioral experiments and neuroscientific experiments, which uh, explore aspects of these mathematical and conceptual models that you've created. And then you iterate through experiments and refining your theories, and that informs your theories and your experiments. And eventually, hopefully, obviously, it has some practical implications for the real world, as with the example of the, um, the diseases. And I'm not quite as, uh, as, as, as unhappy with Quentin about making, you know, introducing neuroscientific uh, uh, sort of perspectives on, 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 on that type of moral decision-making. Um, so then in the second half, obviously, we had brilliant talks by Quentin and Neil and Ben. Um, and, and, and a broader framework was introduced, where he's explaining that... Um, uh, you can have, uh, and, and this broader framework um, explained good decision-making behavior in different circumstances and also explained how behavior can go wrong. So, for example, uh, you can have so-called irrational behavior that people make uh, or, it, or, or, or psychiatric problems that Neil described. And three distinct and parallel systems were, uh, were talked about, a goal-directed sort of chess-playing system um, which is useful when you're uh, learning how to navigate around a new city, for example. But when it goes wrong, it can lead to um, uh, uh, making worse decisions on complicated decision problems uh, or, for example, to psych psychopathy, as Neil was describing. You've then got a habitual system, which Steve had talked about in the first, um, the first half of the, of, of, of the colloquium, um, involving prediction errors and, and, the, and value. Um, and this habitual system is great. It, can, it enabled uh, Deep Blue to beat Gary Kasparov at chess. Um, and it's brilliant when you're sort of driving to work so you don't have to think about it. But it does mean that you accidentally, uh, you, or for example, that explains what happens in the Asian disease uh, uh, um, uh, question that we had where people would pick uh, one, a plan A over plan B when framed in one way and plan B over plan A when framed in another way. And it, can also, uh, uh, it also explains aspects of addiction, for example. And then we had a third system of innate phobias, uh, of, of innate, an innate system which uh, explains aspects of phobias, for example. And then Ben's talk illustrated um, a crucial point, which is, he actually had many points, but a crucial point which also addresses your sort of um, a number of questions that have come up from it. That, that we've, we've looked at a cellular level. So, for example, Steve was talking at a, a very basic level of single cells, where we can record from a single cell. And you can go from there to a, a slightly larger level where you're talking about millions of neurons. Um, so that's, for example, uh, the work that, that went on um, uh, in humans uh, using functional magnetic resonance imaging. And then at a behavioral level, where we can do experiments, for example, with the chicken and making the chicken run away. You know, it can't get, get its food because it has this... Um, uh, inability to learn to, uh, to run away from the food in order to get the food. And then at a social level, how understanding um, 
our behaviour and our irrationalities and just human nature um, explains our uh, social behaviour as well and our, our, our behaviour in groups and societies. And understanding any of those levels in isolation um, is, 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 is worse than understanding it when informed by, by uh, knowledge of all of the levels. So it really just remains to thank all of the speakers um, for their brilliant talks and particularly Elizabeth Runis for um, organising a lot of this. Um, also to thank um, Professor Cooper and Gresham College um, and the Worshipful uh, Society of uh, Scientific Instrument Makers uh, and of course all of you who have uh, attended today and asked such uh, insightful questions. Thank you very much. I would also like to congratulate our chairman, Nick Wright, on bringing this fascinating conference or colloquium to a conclusion dead on time. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Two quick things. The first thing is that, arising from the last comment, it is necessary, in my view, for scientists to engage in debate with politicians and journalists about their profession. They will be ignored, you will be ignored, you will be misquoted, but get used to it and keep doing it. Finally, Ben said there is an appeal to us about the unknown. He's quite right, because through that door is some wine of unknown quality. <laughs> Please explore it. Thank you. This lecture was a part of the colloquium, Decision-Making in Health and Disease. For all information, please go to our website, www.gresham.ac.uk.